0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We're happy to note here at the onset that in our second segment today, a man who's become a regular on this program, Stephen J. Harper, will return. In this case, to talk about a book he wrote some years back, titled Crossing Hoffa, A Teamster's Story. The teamster in question is Steve's dad, who was a loyal teamster and got mixed up in the politics of the union and wound up, uh, per the title, Crossing Jimmy Hoffa, probably the most powerful union leader in the country at that time. Uh, Luckily, it didn't turn out as badly as it might have, and I can assure you it's a riveting tale that we're going to have some fun talking about segment number two. We should also note that last week at KDVS, where we've been on the air for 20 years, the station conducted its annual pledge drive. I'm sad to note that we did not do as well as we had hoped to do, uh, nor did the station, apparently, but um, I think we need to address that in the future. This is a a worthwhile effort, a college radio station, community-based radio station, KDVS, and uh, they need to find a way to raise funds more effectively. Something who I think we'll, um, we've been trying to help them with for a while and we will continue to do so in the future. Anyway, what I think I'd like to do on today's program is start off with one of our perennial favorites, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We would note that according to the Week magazine, it was a good week a week or so ago for political correctness with the news that a teenager was disqualified from a Pokemon trading card tournament in North Carolina because he giggled when asked his preferred pronoun. Makani Tran said his brief laugh was caused by pre-match jitters and that he has zero issues with people's pronouns and how they choose to identify, but a judge told Tran that his giggle caused someone to feel, quote, unsafe and uncomfortable, end quote. And let's face it, who hasn't felt uncomfortable and sometimes even unsafe when someone around them is giggling inappropriately? And it was, on the other hand, a, a bad week for lovers of porn, with the revelation that, quote, quote, Claudia, unquote, an attractive 19-year-old brunette who's selling lots of nude photos of herself on the website Reddit, is in fact the imaginary creation of an AI-powered image generator. And no, we have no way of knowing here at Radio Parallax whether that was in any way discouraging to the purchasers of said pornographic images. But it does speak to the uh, often claimed issue that AI is going to have some powerful effects in our future. Though we're not sure in this instance that it is going to indeed make the world a better place. And lastly, it was an ugly week a few weeks back for getting a taste of freedom with the news that two Virginia inmates, who after laboriously tunneling out of a prison using a toothbrush, went for pancakes at an IHOP just seven miles away and were promptly recaptured. (laughs) The reason for that was that fellow diners recognized them from news reports. Now, we realize that sometimes people just can have an overpowering hankering for a stack of hots, but our recommendation to anyone who's determined to break out of prison is, once you're out, you really should hightail it away and not stop for some, you know, butter and maple syrup draped hotcakes. But our suspicion is that most listeners we have in the prison population are already aware of that. And since we're in a humorous vein, let us pull out one of our perennial favorites on the show, the oftentimes masterpieces produced by Gary Trudeau in his Doonesbury strip. In his first panel of six, Mike Doonesbury and wife are in front of the television, from which comes the sound bubble. Do you suffer from mild forgetfulness? Well, it might be time for a placebo. Panel two. Prevagen is the only placebo proven to stimulate denial in older adults with memory loss. Panel 3. How? Well, it contains a synthetic ingredient like one found in jellyfish, who have memories like elephants. (laughs) Fourth panel. Anecdotal results may vary, but three out of four pharmacists recommend Prevagen and other products that they carry. Panel 5. Ask your pharmacist if spending $750 a year on Prevagen is right for you. And in the final panel, Mike turns to his wife and says, is this strip a rerun? It looks familiar. To which she replies, wow, good recall. No Prevagen for you. Yes, if I thought jellyfish proteins would improve my memory, I'd be taking them too. But there really is no evidence that it does, which is why I think Gary Trudeau can put a strip out like this and not fear any legal reprisals from the people that make Prevagen. I must say that is a gutsy move. And speaking of sea creatures, we have an item here from the week referring to sea stars. Now, I realize that, uh, we know, we are broadcast on KDVS, and people in the zoology department are going to say, why is he bringing that up? The sunflower sea star, the largest starfish in the world, is part of the phylum Echinodermata, whereas jellyfish are selenorata, a totally different phylum, but then you knew that. Anyway, the bad news about the sunflower sea star the largest starfish in the world, is that it apparently is on the verge of extinction. The star, which can support 24 limbs and span more than a yard from tip to tip, was once ubiquitous along the Pacific coast. But between 2013 and 2017, more than 90% of the species was wiped out by sea star wasting syndrome. It's what thought to be the largest marine disease outbreak ever recorded. Scientists believe the epidemic is caused by a pathogen and linked to climate change as the disease spreads faster in warmer waters. The animal's decline has been devastating for California's kelp forests. Sunflower sea stars consume kelp-eating sea urchins, which have exploded in population since the starfish went, went into decline. When you remove the sea stars, said Sadie Wright of the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, You can see the cascading effects. Wright and her colleagues have recommended that the animals be protected under the Endangered Species Act. Mr. Whirling is not sure how that's going to help because, well, who are we protecting the sea stars from? Now, let's face it, there is trouble brewing in the world's oceans. We reported some years ago in this program how it was that off the California coast, satellite photos showing massive beds of kelp now don't show such massive beds. So we are happy to report that some scientists are taking a look at um, kelp, and noting that it is something we really could foster to our great benefit. First off, you can eat it. It's noted that China, Japan it's noted that in China, Japan, and Korea, seaweed is a major part of the national diet. And I must confess, those little flat uh, boxes they sell of dried seaweed are something that I've, uh, well, not exactly become addicted to, but do enjoy very much. No, I'm not kidding. They're tasty. And even if you don't think about it, you're probably still ingesting seaweed or extracts of it without knowing it. Thickeners in sauces and yogurts, for example, are made of carrageenans, which are compounds found in red seaweed. They're often listed as E-407 on packaging. They're also a common ingredient in many cosmetics. New scientists quoted a scientist in Denmark as saying that nobody knows there is carrageenan from seaweed in your toothpaste. Seaweed's long-chain molecules might be ideal for making plastic substitutes. And some such bioplastics are already on the market. Anyway, the point of this article is that uh, we can get a lot more seaweed by cultivating it. And I really do hope that they can proceed along these lines to, um, to put seaweed where it maybe isn't grown uh, in quantity at present, and, and, and by all means, do what they can to restore the kelp beds off the California coast. And this causes us to slide sideways into our previous story about all of the sargassum, which is a type of seaweed which is currently menacing beaches in Florida and the Caribbean. Now, folks out there are intent upon harvesting <laughs> massive amounts of seaweed. This may, uh, this may be a shortcut to that. But uh, the piece in New Scientist from uh, May of, of 2020 shows a photograph of seaweed farms off the coast of China, noting that they are more low-maintenance than land agriculture. Yes, that's correct, Mr. Mullen. They require very little watering. Anyway, this correspondent is hoping to make a trip to the East Coast in the not-too-distant future, from which I should be able to give you a first-hand report on uh, the issues of Sargassum. And in a report from The Washington Post from last month, it is noted that there is now hope that some corals around the world can survive the warming of the Earth's oceans. Corals have a symbiotic relationship with the algae, or algae that they harbor. Yes, I know, one's a British, one's an American pronunciation. I guess I'll stick to the American. The algae donate their energy from photosynthesis to the corals in the form of sugars, and when the algae die in too warm water, the corals bleach. A new study shows, however, that certain algae are better able to withstand the heat, and researchers looked at data from Uva Island in Panama, which suffered several heat waves between 1980 and 2018. They found that reefs that hosted more algae from the species Drusidinium glinium were healthier than those who had different species. So maybe they can take this heat resistant algae, spread it to the world's uh, coral reefs, and get some benefit from it. I'm a little pessimistic about that, but I hope they can succeed. And you may be able to tell that we've really been trying to reach out to find some good news on the environmental front. We're facing an ever warming world, we're facing a human population that's exploding. We're facing scary climactic events all over the world. We're seeing the polar caps melt. There's a lot to be worried about, but uh, there is some hope from <laughs> we can derive from the fact that, well, maybe we, maybe we haven't measured things properly. Maybe it's not as bad as we think. One such line of reasoning comes from New Scientist's January 14th edition from this year, which notes that volcanoes appear to be emitting up to three times more climate cooling gases than previously thought according to analysis of particles in the Greenland ice core. Sulfate aerosols have a cooling effect on the climate. They alter clouds and they reflect solar radiation. Gases released by volcanoes marine phytoplankton and the burning of fossil fuels all contribute to the production of sulfate aerosols. But measuring the contribution from each source is hard, and there's uncertainty about their climactic impact. To resolve this, the magazine notes, Ursula Jongablood at the University of Washington and her colleagues looked at sulfate particles in the Greenland ice and gauged levels of various isotopes of sulfur. From doing that, they could tell how much sulfate came from volcanoes and how much came from marine sources between the years 1200 and 1850. They find that volcanic sulfate emissions were much higher than expected, even in years without major eruptions. Some two-thirds of the sulfate came from volcanoes, which suggests that degassing from non-erupting volcanoes is far more important than they'd thought. Consequently, the team estimates that the cooling effect of human-made sulfate may only be half as potent as thought. It may explain why climate models are not quite able to replicate the high levels of warming we see in the Arctic. They summarize it by saying it's a really interesting study, and it's certainly possible we've underestimated the impact of volcanic degassing globally. But aerosols don't travel far from their source, so we can only draw conclusions about the Arctic region from the Greenland ice cores. Well, there's a hopeful note. And we also reported last January that um, ocean avalanches are just now getting the the study that they warrant. Vast, mysterious currents, uh, Drag huge amounts of silt in the depths, they can reshape the ocean floor, and they could move a lot of carbon down to the depths of the ocean where they can remain, which, which is something we need a lot of right now. As we reported on the show some months back, and I think it's worthy of reporting again, the hint of why the sediment caught in the samples taken by scientists was full of fresh based marine organic carbon they think that these large turbidity currents are being fed by blooms of algae at the head of marine canyons. Many of the world's canyons provide a focal point for upwelling, where the surface ocean currents drop cool, nutrient-rich water from the depths and create a productive region teeming with life. Well, that's good. There's a lot of carbon in that life. If you can have a giant uh, under-ocean avalanche, take that down to the depths, well, again, that's something to hope for. And uh, this article did note that previous research has shown that 99% of the 8 million tons of plastic entering the ocean each year is unaccounted for. The suspicion is that much of this ends up in the deep ocean, but how it gets there until now has been a bit of a mystery. There's a recent article out now noting that um, the microorganisms in the ocean, bacteria in particular, may be breaking down the plastic's... In the ocean faster than we know now what effect that might have from putting these uh, broken down bits of plastic and chemically altered bits of plastic into the food chain well that's that's a whole different story we repeat again that uh, the study done of, of a giant ocean uh, avalanche off the coast of africa they estimated that the equivalent of one third of the sediment eroded by all of the rivers in the world in one year got flushed down this canyon in one single event lasting just for a couple of days which caused him to say all in all there seems to be a lot more going on than we'd ever realized and man ain't that the truth about planet earth we're still learning how it works and there is so much that we don't know And no, I'm not going to touch this story about how it is they think that the Earth's core is spinning faster or slower because I don't understand how that can be, and we're just not going to go there. Although if we are going to make mention of of mysteries in science, I I cannot resist um, reporting on something I saw. I don't know which one of these streaming services I was watching, but it talked about the great oxygenation event that took place in planet Earth about 2.4 million years ago. It's a fascinating subject. If you or I could get into a time machine and go back 2.4 million years and step out, we'd be dead pretty quickly because there ain't enough oxygen to breathe. Now it's believed that microorganisms were manufacturing. Now it seems clear in retrospect that for probably hundreds of millions of years, microorganisms were manufacturing uh, incredible amounts of oxygen, but there was so much iron in the Earth's oceans that the oxygen combined with the iron formed rust, made sedimentary deposits, which, by the way, are still present all over the world in what are called banded iron deposits. That's why there's a big iron industry up in the Great Lakes region. And once they kind of deposited all that iron out of the ocean, then the oxygen could start building up in the atmosphere, which eventually led to you and me. Well, there, there were a few steps along the way. But I watched a, a sort of a companion documentary. It wasn't the same people who put out the, the one I'm referring to, which was quite excellently done. But something I always wondered about is, how is it that Mars is the red planet? It's a planet full of rust. That's why when you go out and look at the planet, it, it's red. Rust is red. It's a giant damn ball of rust. Now, here on Earth, we have vast... Rust deposits everywhere from what I'm referring to a moment ago about the fact that all this oxygen got created. The question that arises, which was not satisfactorily answered by the documentary, is where did Mars get all of the oxygen to form all of its rust? To which I would add, clearly there's more to the story. By the way, they think Mars got rusty faster than the Earth did, something like three and a half billion years ago, not two and a half for us. So does that mean Mars got microorganisms before us and pumped out huge amounts of oxygen? Well, I certainly doubt it, but I don't have any other explanation. And dear listeners, if you, the scientist among you, or or the non-scientist among you, have some thoughts or something you read about that can help explain this, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. And speaking of letters from the public, we would like to thank uh, the generous contributor, who weighed in on last week's Pledge Drive program, who noted they've been listening to this show for 20 years. Who knew? And to KDVS since 1978. I'm not sure I've been listening for 20 years. Mr. Villain, I'm not sure sometimes you're listening at all. What? There's a pretty good article in The Atlantic uh, a couple issues ago by Jonathan Rauch, titled, Is America Ready for a New Age of Nuclear Power? The subtitle was, there's no way to mitigate climate change without it. That is a premise that we suspect is probably true, sadly. But we also suspect that due to the, uh, the work of anti-nuclear activists and, and the fault of the damn nuclear industry itself, which has been basically a branch of uh, the military-industrial complex, I hate to say, due to this unfortunate convergence, we're not sure the cavalry can get here in time. Our pessimism is reinforced by an article, which I can't put my hands on the moment, uh, which referred to how it was that uh, the Germans have decided that in spite of the fact that they're having an energy crisis and this is being compounded by the war in Ukraine and the cutting off of gas supplies, the Germans have decided this would be a good time to go ahead and maintain (laughs) their plan to shut down the nukes of the country. I think as recently as 20 years ago, Germany got something like 20% of its energy from nukes and it's now down to like six and uh, will soon go down to zero. Although not exactly zero because Germany buys lots of power from France, which has an excess because France is powered by, surprise, nuclear energy. Of course the french built uh, their their reactors in a sane way not making each one of them uh, a custom uh, a custom spec facility but instead making them all the same you know what we're not going to go into that today All right, let's go to the archives and uh take a whack at the dismal science although this isn't really an article about economics well maybe it is an article about economics I stumbled upon this in my archives a couple weeks ago, an article of one of our favorites, Michael Lewis. This comes from the New York Times Magazine, June 6th, 2004. As I recall, I skimmed at the time, thought this is something we could talk about in the radio, and well, sometimes it just doesn't happen overnight. So 19 years later, I would like to pick up this piece by Michael Lewis, titled The Irresponsible Investor, and take a few excerpts from it. The subheadline was corporate fraud, sweatshop abuse, no charitable giving, blame the shareholder. Now the quaint aspect about this piece is it's it's written in, in 04 at the time when Google was just sort of getting off the ground and had not yet become the worldwide behemoth that it is at the moment. So as with some nostalgia we look back at what Michael Lewis was writing in 2004 and saying that In a recent letter to financial markets, in which they lay out the ground rules for their public share offering, Google's founders, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, insist that rule number one will be, don't be evil. This, they seem to think, will strike their audience as a radical idea. That is because the audience consists mainly of investors. Five long years in Silicon Valley have apparently taught the Google founders a great deal about the people who are about to make them billionaires. The rap sheet on the American investor is long, but it can be briefly summarized. One, the investor cares about short-term gains in stock prices a lot more than he does about the long-term viability of a company. Indeed, says Michael Lewis, he does not even seem to notice that the two goals often conflict. Outside pressure from investors, write the Google founders, too often tempt companies to sacrifice long-term opportunities to meet quarterly market expectations. Of course, I have to stop right there and say, when we see what Google did, discovering the boatloads of money that it could make by knowing what you're searching for, well, to make a long story short, that took the whole don't be don't be evil phrase and, you know, flushed it down the toilet. But, but I digress. According to Michael Lewis, the second thing we should keep in mind when considering the irresponsible investor, is that the American investor's short-term greed leads him to be more interested in the appearance of a business than its substance. Wrote the Google founders, sometimes this pressure has caused companies to manipulate financial records in order to, quote, make their quarter, unquote. Says Lewis, the investor, of course, likes to think of himself as a force for honesty and transparency. But he's proved in recent years that he prefers a lucrative lie to an expensive truth. And he's very good at letting corporate managers know it. The third item regarding the irresponsible investor is that investors in their short-sightedness encourage companies to neglect their social responsibility. Said Lewis, this otherwise innocent letter to stock market investors turns on its head the moral verdict of the internet boom. In the world, according to Google, investors aren't victims, but perps. He goes on to explain at some length in this piece how it is that that's a very convenient attitude for the founders of a large company to adopt. Although sadly, without a doubt, this does point to pressures that any such head of a company would have to face once they answer to investors. Now, if you hold any investments out there, dear listener, and we hope you do have some, we would note that one thing you want for sure is to get some kind of return on what it is you hold. And we also hope that you want to balance that off with something that is socially responsible. You know what I mean? This article points out 19 years ago, something I didn't know about, that there is a socially responsible investing index, the SRI. It exists to create pressures on businessmen to behave less like greedy automatons and more like responsible human beings. But he notes by the most wildly generous calculations, only one in $9 is invested in SRI funds the vast majority of these merely seek to avoid tobacco stocks. Of the roughly $19 trillion in American capital investment, in other words, $17 trillion or so is invested with the implicit instruction, just give me back as much money as possible. So this is something we all potentially can share a great deal of blame in. As we close, the article does cite Birkenstocks USA, which was a private company, at least it was then, it was subject to ordinary market forces, but was immune to pressures from the outside investor. Lewis describes how the Haas Business School in Berkeley took a trip out to Nevada, California to, uh, to visit the good people at Birkenstocks. Lewis notes the company's been doing good works willy-nilly for 30 years. It pays employees to volunteer, gives away sacks of cash to worthy causes without telling people about it. The business school students, after visiting, <laughs> recommended to the CEO that... Um, They might want to ditch some of their good works and put all their energy into a single very public act that connected up naturally to footwear. They recommended shrewdly that Birkenstock sponsors walks for causes. The cause really didn't matter so much as the fact that potential customers would be walking many miles on its behalf and someone online would encounter a giant sign that said Birkenstock. Notes Lewis, the CEO, listened politely to what the business school students had to say and said to him, I wrestled with the words and phrases they throw around. Formalize, standardize, best practices, bang for your buck. Those words don't live in this organization on a daily basis. A lot of them are words we try to abolish. He said, make money, yes, but don't make a fetish out of it. If the company were compelled to answer to shareholders, it would destroy us. Lewis concluded by saying this kind of talk is daft to most investors. Birkenstock USA has existed for nearly 40 years but it still has only about 120 million dollars in annual sales. It has grown slowly, generating steady but modest profits and exhibiting no great ambition to grow a lot faster. To which he added, who wants to invest in that? Saying that to the financial markets, these guys are a bunch of mediocrities. But he said, that's the idea. Saying when you make a point of behaving extremely well, you're unlikely to make as much money as when you don't. And that may be a good way to close this off today. Kind of reminds me of that line from The Godfather II, when the senators are grilling Michael Corleone, to which he replies with, we're all part of the same hypocrisy, Senator. And I guess to some degree it is unavoidable, but we can, you know, modify what we do, and and we should. Anyway, we are in need of a short break. Let's take one. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. When we come back, we'll be speaking with our good friend Stephen J. Harper.